0: Setting coordinates, Outlaw located. I'm Ryan McCarthy, and welcome to The Stolen Goods. This podcast is all about outlaws, bandits, and scourges of the seven seas. Every week, we're going to take a look at a different one of these characters and learn about them. We'll shine the spotlight on some of the most infamous bandits, outlaws, and pirates in history, and even dig deeper to learn about some that maybe you haven't heard of before. I am not a historian, nor do I claim to be an expert on the topic. I'm just a guy who thinks this type of stuff is rad and wants to learn more about it. So grab your bow and arrow, six-shooter, and bag of blue, and join me as we walk the plank and plunge into the lawless world of banditry and swashbucklery. Is that a word? Together. All right. And welcome to the Stolen Goods. My name is Ryan McCarthy. Thank you so much for joining me. And Happy New Year. Um, this episode will be coming out on Monday, the 2nd. You know, I wanted to get it out on uh, on. Uh, The first on Sunday, but there was just too much going on this week. I'm sure you understand. I'm sure you're all doing stuff and I'm sure, you know, you had a wild and wacky December 31st. And if you didn't, it was because you're like me and you just don't want to go out anymore. Um, The idea of being out on January 1st at like any time after midnight is just a terrible idea. Um, so if you're listening to this, it's because you got home safely and I'm happy. I'm happy to hear that. Um, yeah. And it was cool because I, uh, I got to ring in the new year doing what is the most important thing in my life right now, which is this podcast. Uh, I love doing this podcast and I love talking to you, um, whoever you are. Uh, and, uh, and I just find it really, really cool because, um, I'm seeing a lot of people from all over the world, uh, tuning in and not everybody tunes into every episode. People tune into the ones that they're interested in. And, uh, I have a few people or, you know, I see in the metrics, like a few towns are showing up, um, pretty regularly, And uh, I really appreciate that. And I I just noticed that throughout the different episodes, you know, I I see people from Australia uh, uh, tuning in and India and the United Kingdom and the Shetland Islands, which I didn't didn't even know where they were. And then I had to look it up and they're like a little bit northeast of Scotland Um, and uh, Malaysia, uh, Canada, Mexico, uh, all over the United States, Vietnam, Vietnam. Uh, you know, uh, so, uh, Belgium, France, you know, Spain, it, it, it's just, I, I just, I find that so cool. Um, and, uh, if I didn't say your country, I apologize, but thank you for listening. So, um, you know, we're ringing in the new year here and, uh, we're, we're ringing in the new year with a little bit of style, you know, I said it was going to be, a, I said it was going to be a pirate I said that we we're going to do a pirate um, last week and I changed my mind. And the reason why uh, I was well, I was I was looking for um, something that was kind of like New Year's themed and I really couldn't find anything. Uh, but what I did find was uh, a pretty stylish bandit, uh, a bank robber. Uh, and this guy is very uh, Ocean's Eleven-y. You know, we're talking about a guy that was like a gentleman bank robber and uh, a total socialite and, um, you know, uh, pulling off these elaborate heists. You know, I do like the uh, I do like the bank robbers that are smash and grab and putting 45s or, uh, you know, like uh, cult 45s in your in your face and robbing you. Uh, I do not condone it. Let me just put that out there. Um, but uh, uh, this one was. Uh, we, we're kind of changing pace, and uh, you know the idea of Robin Banks uh, with a with a three piece suit on, all that good stuff. And so today we're talking about George Leonidas Leslie, uh, this guy kind of like the the creator of the um, uh, replica model that people practice on uh, that you see in bank robbery movies like oceans 11 and the italian job and all that kind of stuff uh, this guy is kind of like the um i'm not gonna say he's the godfather because there are a few other bank robbers like him uh that i discovered through doing my research on this guy but um uh this guy is basically you know he, he's definitely the og gentleman bank robber so uh what do you say We jump into the time machine here, and uh, let's get out of here, and let's go check them out right now. All right, so here we are in 1842, and it was a good year. On March 3rd, Massachusetts passed the first child labor law in the country. And they really cracked down, I gotta say. They made it so children under 12 couldn't work more than 10 hours a day. 10 hours a day! So, the next time you complain about your 8-hour work shift, just remember that if you were 11 in 1842 and had just worked 8 hours, Massachusetts, at the very least, still thought that you had 2 more hours in you. That's nuts. And on August 27th, the Treaty of Nanjing was signed between the Chinese and the British, giving Great Britain control of the island of Hong Kong. Now, China had restricted trade between China and England and would sell tea and other goods for silver, but wouldn't buy any goods from England. So England wasn't making any money back. And on top of that, they were only allowed to trade out of one port in China out of the Canton province, modern day Guangzhou. So, Great Britain started smuggling opium in from India into China and basically dealing drugs to the Chinese to raise money. So, in 1842, China was like, fine, we'll trade with you and give you more port access. Just stop turning our citizens into drug addicts. Not cool, man. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's kind of the gist of it. And in the same year, in 1842, in New York City, a boy named George Leonidas Leslie was born. To his parents who had just moved to america from that crazy opium slinging island of great britain two years before the facts about george leslie's childhood are pretty few and far between but a few years after he was born his father decided to pack up the family and move to cincinnati where he opened up a brewery and apparently did very well for himself and george and his parents started living a good life then on february 4th 1861 the seven states of south carolina georgia florida alabama mississippi louisiana and texas succeeded from the union culminating the battle of fort sumter which is generally considered the beginning of the civil war and at first feelings of patriotism soared high and people flocked to join the army for both the north and the south but as time went on the reality of the war started to set in people lost their enthusiasm for the war and the armies on both sides started to dwindle in numbers This led the South in 1862, and the North, which included Ohio in 1863, to pass acts of conscription, which required every able-bodied male citizen and immigrant between the ages of 20 and 45 to register in the newly established draft. Many people didn't believe in the war, let alone want to enlist and become one of the 620,000 soldiers who ultimately ended up dying in the war, which according to the National Park Service website, nps.gov, is the amount of American fatalities in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, and the Korean Conflict combined. But there was a way out, though. If you could find a substitute to take your place, usually someone of very poor social standing, who could only benefit from being in the army, if they survived, that is you were off the hook the other alternative was to just pay the government three hundred dollars to get out of service this was the equivalent of seven thousand dollars of today's money which most people couldn't afford this was not a very popular policy amongst the general public and people rioted in the streets all over the country screaming about how this was a rich man's war but a poor man's battle nevertheless When it came time for George Leonidas Leslie to get drafted, that's exactly what his rich father did. He paid the government 300 bucks and George was out, to which he caught an enormous amount of flack for. But George carried on and attended the University of Cincinnati for architecture and graduated with the equivalent of high honors. The whole Latin honors thing like Summa Cum Laude and Magna Cum Laude didn't start until 1880. He then started his own architecture firm and started making money and was well on his way. But the dark cloud of his draft dodge never left him. Then, in 1867, both of his parents died, and he decided it was time to get out of Ohio and head east. So, he told the rest of his family and friends that he was going to New York to make, quote, easy money, and in 1869 he arrived in New York City. By this time, the Civil War was over, but the repercussions of the war were far from gone. Poverty was rampant in the city of New York. Thousands of families who had lost their fathers and husbands to the war struggled to make ends meet. Soldiers coming back from the war struggled as they transitioned into the life of a veteran. New York was a hub where many people came back to before returning to their farms in more rural areas. But many people stayed, despite the pleas of the city begging them to stop coming. William Olin Bourne, the editor of the Soldier's Friend newspaper, wrote, "...we have already more than once endeavored to advise young men and women in the country as well as others not to come to New York for employment. Many soldiers with battle wounds such as amputated limbs found it even harder to find work." And while the United States had passed legislation in 1862 to support disabled soldiers and the widows of soldiers killed in action, little was done for soldiers coming back from the war physically unharmed but with tons of PTSD. Many searched for work and couldn't find any. The economy was reliant on the war for a lot of jobs, so once the war was over, a lot of employment opportunities dried up. Many people resorted to crime, became con men, pickpockets, or engaged in a practice called shanghaiing, where they would be paid by corrupt shipping companies to drug men, kidnap them, and put them on a ship where they would wake up only to realize that they were forced into a cheap labor force on a ship typically on its way to Shanghai. Amongst this crippling poverty, on the other side of town in Manhattan, the Gilded Age was just getting started as some of the most powerful men in the country hobnobbed with each other in an almost incomprehensible level of wealth. Men like the railroad and shipping tycoon Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was worth $100 million, and John D. Rockefeller, who was worth about $300 million. different websites calculate these fortunes differently based on GDP and all that stuff that I don't really understand, but just rest assured that this is just a ton of money. And it was in this world of socialites and aristocrats that George Leonidas Leslie inserted himself into. He was smart, charismatic, and he had family connections. He didn't have a lot of money when he got to town, but he knew how to look like he did. And the funny thing is, is that when he got to town, there were a million opportunities and a desperate need for reconstruction. And he could have made a killing if he went to all these high-living masters of the universe and said, I'm an architect, and so on. And he would have made a Ton of money designing new buildings but that's not what he wanted he wanted to rob this town blind so the first thing he needed to do was immerse himself in this life of high society he went to the fanciest parties claimed to be an architect i mean he was not like he was lying he went to the nicest shows broadway opera etc he shopped at the finest tailor shops anything he could do to boost his street cred with the elite after establishing himself as a bon vivant or socialite or sophisticated man about town, he needed to get in good with the criminal underworld and start making some connections. Although, through all of his high society socializing, he became friends with such robber barons as James Fisk and Jay Gould and William Boss Tweed, Fisk and Gould, along with another man named Abel Corbin, were behind the Black Friday Gold Panic of September 24, 1869, and Boss Tweed was a corrupt politician who helped Gould and Fisk avoid prosecution. They liked the cut of George's jib and decided to introduce him to some of the people in their circle of the criminal underworld. The first person he met was a German woman named Frederica Mandelbaum, aka Marm, who immigrated to america from germany in 1850 with her husband and started a business of peddling stolen goods from scavengers and working their way up the black market ladder So by the time George met her, she too was acting like a socialite in the world of high society. Next, he had to find himself a gang of criminals, but not thugs. He needed people who could pull off his vision of gentlemanly Ocean's Eleven-style bank robbery. And based on the ragtag band of crooks he ended up with, it would appear that he aimed for the stars and took what he could get. So let's have a look at this group of misfits, shall we? so first we have thomas shang draper who was a con man who ran a saloon on the waterfront who got his nickname because he shanghied people all the time he would drug their drinks when tending bar and then dump them on ships he also ran a scam where he had a young girl posing as a prostitute lure men into a hotel room where he would be and then he would just rob them blind he was a great guy next we have john red leary who was a union army war vet about 300 pounds and one of the fairest criminals you could ever ask for it is said that he always demanded a fair fight regardless of whether or not it was a barroom brawl or a boxing match and if you stayed at his house and got drunk you could rest assured that your valuables be waiting for you in the morning and he never used profanity around ladies after that we have jimmy hope who is an escape artist, safecracker, and career criminal. And I love how when you look up any of these people on Wikipedia, on the right of the page where they have all their stats, like date of birth and stuff like that, there's a section for occupation. And for him, it says criminal. Like, is that really an occupation? before joining the leslie gang in 1875 in 1869 him and two others posed as police officers and stole hundred thousand dollars from the Kensington savings bank in philadelphia just shameless other members of the gang included banjo P. emerson jimmy brady abe coakley And worcester sam paris so now george has a gang he has a fence that he is earning the trust of and now it's time to start robbing some banks the first thing he would do is go to parties and he would find a prominent bank owner and strike up a conversation and say something to the effect of i'm an architect and i'm currently designing a bank and i just can't get the vault right do you think i could take a look at your blueprints nobody suspected him He was charismatic and looked wealthy, and he was, in fact, an architect, so he knew how to talk the talk. So people would just show him the blueprints and bam. Now he knew the ins and outs of the bank and could replicate the bank and figure out how to break in without being detected. How did he do this, you ask? Well, his fence, Marm, was in possession of a bunch of abandoned warehouses in Brooklyn that she used to store all of her stolen goods at and she let him use one of them as his headquarters to plan his heists. And since the Brooklyn Bridge hadn't been completed yet, construction on the Brooklyn Bridge started in 1869 and ended in 1883 there wasn't a lot of traffic in Brooklyn so there wasn't a lot of police presence snooping around I mean you can't make this stuff up now in cases where george couldn't get access to blueprints he would open up an account at the bank and visit the bank a number of times to case the place and use his architectural knowledge to figure out weak points other times he would convince the management of the bank to hire someone he knew who was part of the gang and then use them as an inside man on the job once he had the blueprint of the bank and had effectively cased the bank. He would set up a replica of the bank floor in the warehouse all the way down to where the desks were placed in the room and would have his team navigate the room in the dark while he would time them with a stopwatch. He would also find out what kind of bank safe or vault a bank had and would buy the same kind on the black market so him and his cohorts could practice cracking it. One of the most interesting tactics that Leslie implemented was using a device called a little joker which was a thin disc of metal with a wire on it that would have to be placed on the inside of the dial of a vault. And when the bank workers spun the dial according to the combination, the tumblers would make imprints on the thin metal, the correct numbers making the biggest imprints. Now, this would give you at least the correct numbers of the combination, and you would just have to figure out what the order was. Now, this required you to break into the bank twice before you even robbed it. Once to plant the little Joker, and another time to retrieve it so you can look at the imprints. So it was critical to have someone on the inside to help with that. Other than that, don't ask me anything more about how the little joker works. I have expended anything I know about how this thing works. One of the Leslie Gang's most successful robberies was one of his first ones in 1869, where him and his cronies robbed the Ocean National Bank in New York City of $786,000. Then, in 1870, while he was living in Philadelphia at a boarding house owned by Mary Coth, he met and married her 15-year-old daughter, Mary Henrietta Coat, aka Molly. He's twenty-eight freaking pervert. And at first, Molly had no idea about his bank robbing double life. But once she found out about it, she was already so comfortable with the lifestyle that she just looked the other way. I mean, at that point, what can you do? Now, over the course of a nine-year period between 1869 and 1878, the New York City Police Chief George Washington Walling estimated that Leslie and his gang were behind 80% of the bank robberies in the United States. Here is a list of a few of the bank robberies according to the website TheHustle.com. 1869 Boylston Bank Massachusetts they robbed them of five hundred thousand dollars about ten point eight million dollars today 1870, Auburn City Bank, New York, about $31,000, $701,000 today. 1871, South Kensington National Bank, New York, $100,000. That's $2.4 million today. 1871, National Bank of Baltimore, $234,000. That's $5.7 million today. 1872, Lycoming Insurance Company, Pennsylvania, $30,000, $728,000 today. 1872, Third National Bank, Maryland, $140,000 that's $3.4 million today. 1872, Saratoga County Bank, New York, $300,000, that's $7.3 million today. 1873, Wellsboro Bank, Pennsylvania, $90,000, $2.2 million. 1873, Milford Bank, New Hampshire, $100,000, that's $2.5 million today. And a lot of sources credit George Leslie with the famous Northampton Bank robbery of 1876, but according to the Pinkerton Detective Agency, that bank robbery was pulled off by the Dunlop and Scott gang out of Chicago, but that's a story for a different episode. However, according to the Pinkerton agency, both Jimmy Abbott and Red Leary were implicated in that robbery and both worked with Leslie as well but since leslie was the mastermind behind his bank robberies and rarely had any hands-on role in them he may have had something to do with it who knows now according to a new yorker article from 1927 the only time leslie was ever connected to a robbery with any evidence and arrested was in 1870 when him and another guy named gilbert yost were busted trying to break into a jewelry store in norristown near philadelphia but by that point He had already made friends with enough politicians that he was released. Yost was not so lucky and he ended up doing two years in prison. In 1875, he started planning his biggest heist yet, which was of the Manhattan Savings Institution. He spent three years planning that job, but during this time he started to get a little careless. Not with the bank heist so much, he started getting careless with women. He was already married to Molly, but he was having an affair with two other women. One was a woman named Babe Irving, and the other one was the mistress of his first lieutenant, Shang Draper. Now, some sources say that there was only one woman, and that Babe Irving and Shang Draper's mistress were one and the same, and that it was his wife who knows then in february 1878 the gang went up to dexter maine to commit a robbery when they got to town they didn't even talk to each other and even checked into different hotels so that nobody could identify them as being connected to each other when they broke into the bank they hung a black drape over a curtain rod so that no one could see them breaking into the safe and while this was happening, one of the burglars walked around the bank dusting and acting like he belonged there, so passers-by didn't think anything of it. Then finally, on October 27th, 1878, the gang committed the robbery of the Manhattan Savings Institution. It made off of $2.7 million, which is the equivalent of $80 million today. The robbers did a pretty sloppy job, though. Jimmy Hope and Worcester Sam Paris and several other masked men broke into the Manhattan Saving Institution and held Janitor Louis Werkel and his family, who lived in the building, captive, holding them at gunpoint. The men forced Workle to open the outer door of the bank vault and then bound and gagged him with the women. The bank robbers were eventually able to gain access using their safe-cracking tools, and the robbers quietly left the bank through the back door, taking with them the securities and money valued at $2,757,700. Of this, $73,000 was in coupon bonds and $11,000 in cash. Shortly after the bank robbers left, Workle untied himself and notified the authorities. After the Manhattan bank robbery, an investigation began and it was discovered that bank watchman Patrick Shelvin was planted by the gang and helped them enter. He gave a full confession and the gang members were rounded up from around the country. Jimmy Hope and his son John Hope and another gang member Bill Kelly were convicted. Jimmy swore until the day he died that his son had nothing to do with the bank robbery and was wrongfully imprisoned. Now, the reason why the bank job was not a clean job was because Leslie was not around to see it. On May 29th, 1878, about five months prior, Leslie was killed and his decomposing body was found lying at the base of Tramps Rock near the border of Westchester and New York counties past the Bronx River. He had been shot in the chest and in the back of the head. To this day, the case has never been solved, but most people believe that it was Shane Draper who killed him. It is believed that Draper found out that Leslie was sleeping with his wife or mistress or whatever she was and had convinced her to ask to see him and lure him to a location where Draper could kill him. It is also said that on more than one occasion, when they robbed Banks, they wore disguises and Leslie had Draper dress up like a woman. That probably didn't help. George's wife Molly had already left for Philadelphia. The plan was to make this robbery the big score and retire, but Molly never saw George again. And since nobody had access to his money, they couldn't give him a proper funeral and he was buried unceremoniously in an unmarked grave in Cypress Hills Cemetery in Brooklyn. It is believed that up until his death, Leslie stole between $7 and $12 million, which equals anywhere from $208 to $357 million. And aside from the little snafu in Norristown, Pennsylvania, he was never caught. It wasn't until the other gang members were caught that the authorities truly found out who George Leonidas Leslie was. Nobody in New York ever suspected that this charismatic socialite would later be named the King of Bank Robbers. So that's it that's the story of George Leonidas Leslie and uh I gotta say um I did not know that um half that stuff was possible back in the 1800s uh this is the kind of stuff I love you know i, I, I love finding these 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 people that are that have all these creative ways of like robbing banks and everything I don't condone it just so you know I <laughs> I feel like I got to say that half the time, you know, I think this stuff is fascinating. I love talking about it. And, um, you know, uh, I think next week we are definitely coming back with a pirate. It's been too long. Uh, we got to get back to some pirating, uh, some swashbuckling and all that good stuff. So in the meantime, Ryan at the stolen goods, podcast.com. If you want to send me an email or check out the website at the stolen goods. com, And, uh, We'll be back next week, so until then, have a great week, and I will talk to you later.